Good evening. Uh, good to see your faces uh, on Zoom and in person soon, Lord willing. Uh, we're going to be continuing our series in the book of Romans today. And because I think this message might go a little long, I had to cut out the introduction, no story. So we're going to just jump right into it. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Romans chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at, we're going to look at verses 18 to 23. So I'm going to read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. Verse 18, starting verse 18, reads, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds animals and creeping things. This is the inerrant and authoritative word of God. Let's open in prayer. Father, we are thankful uh, for just this evening that we can gather. I pray that your spirit will be uh, uh, really just speaking uh, your truth into our hearts, Lord, that we might uh, be uh, illuminated to greater understanding and uh, not only in our head, but also um, uh, through our, our, the deepest of, of our hearts, Lord, into our hands as well, Lord. So uh, would you be with us? Would you help us uh, to understand uh, really just, uh, just the severity and the sober truths that we are about to learn, but also how that points us to the joy that is found in Jesus Christ. Help us in your son's name, we pray. Amen. Well, as we um, approach our text for tonight, I just want to give you a heads up. Uh, it may be uncomfortable for some of you. Uh, tonight's passage explains, and, and it really exposes the darkness of sin, uh, the dark reality of rejecting God. And so if you happen to be visiting Praxis for the first time and you might be thinking, oh, what did I get myself into tonight? Uh, just don't check out, uh, as tempting as that might be. Uh, why? Because the gospel, what we're going to be talking about today, becomes all the more sweet to our ears as we become all the more aware of God's wrath. God's righteousness revealed in Jesus Christ becomes the best news we can possibly hear when we realize we're in the worst situation we can possibly find ourselves in. That is to be under the wrath of God. You see, bad news can actually lead us to appreciate good news. Bad news can lead us to find hope at the end of a dark tunnel. Imagine going to a hospital for follow-up test results. Your physician walks in and you're anxiously waiting. The doctor has a somber grin on his face as the door slowly opens. But suddenly the physician smiles and says, hey, good news, everything is fine. You, you have cancer, but let's not talk about the bad news. You're still alive, right? Let's forget about your cancer. Uh, forget about potential treatments or interventions like chemo. After all, it's just gonna remind you of your cancer when talking about treatment options. 
we'll talk again, let's say in six months when your cancer is terminal at that point, but by then it'll be too late and you're, you're gonna be in chronic pain as you face your certain death. Now, I don't know about you, Praxis, but I would expect my doctor to tell me the truth about my health. No one wants a doctor that obfuscates or minimizes the severity of our health condition for the sake of just making us feel good. And similarly, that is why the Apostle Paul shifts from talking about the righteousness of God to now talking about God's wrath. It is only when we see our greatest need to flee to Jesus that we'll be pleased to embrace the good news of Jesus. Therefore, rather than avoiding the topic of wrath, the wrath of God is actually a good thing to discuss. The wrath is an essential piece of the gospel. It's not a problem, but a solution where justice was poured out and satisfied by Christ on the cross. Which brings us to our key idea for this evening, uh, if you have uh, your notes in front of you. The key idea is this, that God's wrath against the unrighteous demonstrates the seriousness of sin, of our sin, and our desperate need for the righteousness of God. Paul begins to lay out the important reality of God's wrath, beginning in verse 18, where he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Uh, last week, when Alan preached on the main thesis of Romans in verses 16 and 17, where we touched on the righteousness of God received by faith, uh, verse 16 contained that keyword for. And in our passage today, we find four more instances of the word for, no pun intended. And, and Paul's advancing his explanation of the gospel, like a continuous thread weaving throughout this letter, uh, a fuller picture of God's righteousness. In other words, Paul is moving forward with the logic of the gospel. He's gospelizing us with greater force by elaborating and giving reasons for why there is no shame in the gospel message. And the purpose of shifting the conversation to discuss God's wrath is to show why everyone desperately needs to believe the gospel of Jesus. Paul doesn't say you need the gospel because you feel like you're not succeeding in life without him. Like he doesn't even say you need the gospel because he'll help you in your loneliness or fill your, your felt needs for companionship. Paul doesn't say the primary reason you need the gospel is to help you find true meaning and purpose in life either. You see, there are gospel priorities, and sometimes we can lose sight of that. Lose sight of the, the first and primary reason why we need the good news. So we can't lose sight of what is most crucial in the gospel, even all the while acknowledging the additional fringe benefits of the gospel, okay? So Paul says you primarily need to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ because you are presently under the wrath of God. You're headed down a, a path where you will eventually face the eternal wrath of God in hell for your unjust and ungodly rebellion against him. That's why you need the gospel. It's because of the present and real danger of God's wrath. And this is the first point we need to pause and reflect on for tonight here in your notes. The reality of God's wrath points towards our unrighteous position in verse 18. The word wrath refers to God's righteous anger and hate against all that goes against his perfect holy character. God's wrath is not like human uncontrolled anger or, or hot temper. Rather, God's wrath is a natural expression of his own holiness. 
It expresses his loving justice against wrong and evil. And God is set apart as a creator who is perfectly just. Therefore, he must deal with injustices and wrongdoing in order to be consistent as an impartial judge. So God's character never changes, and that's actually a good thing. We often want to avoid God's wrath or think it's wrong. But when we're wronged or evil has been done against us, what do we cry for? We cry for righteous anger and punishment, right? Which is basically what God's wrath is, righteous anger and punishment. When we hear stories of people who dedicate their lives to maybe fighting sex trafficking, we commend and praise them for their pursuit of justice. When a lawyer labors to bring criminals to justice or defend the innocent from injustice, what do we say? We say, amen. That's a good thing, right? And this is the reality of God's expression of his holiness, his perfect justice and his perfect love. This wrath is the proper response against the disobedience and rebellion of man against God. The wrath being revealed is spoken as a a frequent ongoing reality. God's wrath was present in the days of Noah, where he destroyed all mankind except Noah and seven others because of mankind's wickedness and their uh, continuous evil. God's wrath was also present later in uh, Genesis 18 and 19, where he destroyed and decimated the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah with sulfur and fire for their wickedness, leaving only Lot and his family to escape. And these are just but two of many examples found all throughout the Bible to help us see that God is a God of wrath. Wrath isn't merely a scare tactic, but an imminent reality because he is a holy God and a God of justice. He must be against all that is morally wrong and reprehensible against his character and what he stands for. Consider Habakkuk 1.3, where the prophet says about God, you who are of pure eyes then to see evil and cannot look at wrong. You see, God's heated, passionate wrath comes from being perfectly pure and right in his motivations. It's a wrath specifically directed towards ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And as we continue in verse 18, we begin to see the overarching reason for God's wrath, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We are under God's wrath because we suppress the truth. Uh, To suppress someone or something is to to hold back, to to detain, right? To forcefully hold down and restrain. You know, think of it this way. You're, uh, You're trying to stuff or pack a suitcase before going on vacation. I mean, desperately. Uh, You didn't pay for check-in because you're too cheap and you think you can get away with a carry-on. So what do you do? do? You're you're pushing down as hard as you can and even leaning all your weight against the suitcase to try to make it close, right? Or imagine you're chilling at a pool, a swimming pool. There's a beach ball full of air floating on the pool and you try to push down and submerge it, right? Under the surface of the water. But as soon as you loosen your grip, it comes popping right back up due to the buoyant force. And so that's the idea that Paul has in mind here in describing how everyone has handled and treated the truth about God. All of us are guilty of trying to hold back the idea and and forcefully push aside the notion that God exists. And so we try to drown out the truth about God and bury the idea as if we can escape 
and not be accountable before him. But notice this suppression isn't merely just in our head. It's not just a cognitive or mental exercise. Read verse 18 again in context. The wrath is tied to ungodliness and unrighteousness. But in mankind's ungodly attitude, vertically, they bear unrighteous acts horizontally. Unrighteousness bears its fangs in, in wrong and evil treatment towards fellow man through our relationships, as well as in society. So how does this suppression take place? Well, it could take place in unrighteous worldviews, when people hold to worldviews that are contrary to the word of God. Suppression of the truth takes place when sin is minimized, when sin is redefined and then transformed to be seen in a positive light according to maybe society or cultural consensus. What is biblically evil and an offense to God is now a good thing to be celebrated. What was once known as or labeled as adultery then becomes an extramarital affair or they use more ambiguous language like cohabitation so that they don't have to see the seriousness of their sin and God's design for marriage and sex. You see, people suppress the truth about God when they, they dehumanize, they, they hate, and they hurt other human beings created in the image of God because of their maybe ethnicity, their political leanings, or anyone who may disagree with them. The unrighteous acts of all people are linked with their suppression of the truth. In other words, there's a, there's a symbolic relationship between the two that's self-reinforcing. When you sin and practice unrighteousness, you're suppressing the fact that you're accountable to God and that he sees you. God did not create you to pursue the pleasures of sin and do whatever is right in your own eyes. The truth about God confronts you on how you will choose to live your life. When you live, your, live for your own pleasures and, and play the you-do-you card, you're, you're trying to block God out of the picture. You're, you're going to live as if no one sees you and you're accountable to no one. You see, a pursuit of sin and idolatry requires that you get rid of God. So what do we say? We say, God is dead. They say, what God? I don't see or hear God. And in our natural state, we don't choose God. We choose our sin. We choose to worship idols. We stuff God in our metaphoric suitcase and leave him at the Airbnb or hotel and go our merry way. After all, you set your life's itinerary and the world is your oyster. And so you go about living life for yourself. For some, it's the love and pursuit of money. For others, it's the lust and pleasures this world has to offer them. But the common denominator is following the desires of your own heart with an utter disregard to the reality of God's existence, your creator. So the apostle continues to describe how everyone has suppressed God, which brings us to our second point. The reason for God's wrath points to our unexcused perceptions in verses 19 and 20. Paul minces no words as he unfolds the steps all humans take in suppression of truth. Verse 19 reads, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. God has revealed himself to everyone. God acted to reveal himself to mankind. He's not hiding or trying to be crafty, so you have to uh, pull your weight to find the truth about him like you would in some sort of social deduction game like Among Us. Man has the ability to, to know God because, as verse 19 states, it is made, made plain to them. The evidence is out there. 
or in the, the words of an old sci-fi TV show, none of you've watched, the truth is out there. But, none, but not only has God given us the ability to know, uh, to know him, know about him, he goes even further by showing truth about himself to us. Look at verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. There is truth about God that is noble to everyone through nature. The invisible God who is spirit has made certain characteristics about himself visible to everyone. God's power and divine nature is clearly imprinted all over creation. In other words, creation and nature points to God, the creator. This knowledge and the, the access to the knowledge have been made available to everyone. God's power and divine nature is put on majestic display through the varying brushstrokes and hues of light that make up the northern lights, the aurora borealis, where electrically charged particles collide with one another from the sun and enter the Earth's atmosphere. But God's signature is clearly embedded into the curved rims that provide the breathtaking vistas, or vistas of the Grand Canyon. You know how some people love taking Instagram selfies with a beautiful landscape background, and even though their face is taking up most of the photo? You know what they're trying to signal? They're trying to say, I've been there. Well, guess what? God's creation is signal signaling to us, saying, I made that. But not only is God's power and divine nature evident through breathtaking landscapes and creation, but in small intricacies of creation as well. Uh, the, the truth about God's existence is, is clear from the, the grand magnitude of the cosmos to the, the, the granular microscopic level details of DNA. Such as when God creates such complex life from a seed that fertilizes an egg and then forms in the womb of a woman. And these are just but a few examples of a powerful, intelligent design that points to an all-powerful, intelligent designer. Therefore, if you consider yourself to be an, an atheist or an agnostic, you're not necessarily being true to reality. It's a position that you've arrived at because you suppress the truth about God's existence. Now, I'm not trying to advocate a type of apologetic or evangelism method, where if someone calls themselves an atheist or agnostic, your first response as a, as a believer should be to bring them to the beeline to Romans 1, 19 to 20 and, and call them a liar. That probably shouldn't be your entry point to sharing the gospel. But what I am saying is this. The truth about God's existence is clear. Creation reveals God's eternal power in creation, where nothing became something by God speaking everything into existence. But it also reveals his divine nature. And the word divine nature there refers to the performance or power manifested where one would rightly associate with divinity, with deity. It's Paul simply saying this, that God stands apart and a cut above creation, way above creation. Even if man is the crowning jewel of God's creation, having been made in his image, we are but dust compared to God. And where's all this going? Look with me at verse 10, uh, 20. So they are without excuse. Now, this might raise a few questions for some of you. Uh, can people be saved through what God has revealed in creation? Right? 
That makes sense. Can, can what we learn about God through nature save us? And the answer is no. People don't look at like the half dome, you know, at Yosemite and say to themselves, ah, this points to the hill at Golgotha where Jesus was crucified and died for my sins. I should place my faith in him before I make my ascent on this height. You know, the, the fact is natural revelation is very limited. Uh, we can know enough to know that there is a God who exists, but we can't learn enough from nature to be saved. Creation doesn't reveal everything about God's character, but it does bring every human to a, a universal basic understanding of him, which means there is a standard revealing to all humans that we are, that they're accountable for. It means we can't rightly or justly claim, I never learned about God in the school of life. So this means that no one is excused for claiming that he or she is unable to know something about God. Since everyone can know something about God through creation, everyone is accountable to acknowledge him as God. They have a basic understanding, but they suppress it. And so people need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and hear the good news found in the revelation of God's word. Why? Because we know enough about God to be condemned and don't know enough to be redeemed. At this point, I must address the elephant in the room, that lingering question people often ask, which is this, but, but what about the poor, innocent native of an unreached people group who has never heard the gospel? What about that person? What about that situation? Is it fair for them to be under God's wrath when they had no opportunity and no hope to hear the gospel and be saved? Aren't they excused at all? Will God really condemn the innocent natives and, 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 and send them to hell? And the short answer to this coming question is no. Now, before some of you throw your Bibles at your monitors and attempt to, I don't know, hit me because your, your heresy senses are, are tingling, let me say the answer is no, but with a caveat. The answer is no because there are no poor, innocent natives of unread people groups. They aren't innocent. They are guilty for their sin against God and fellow man. And God will condemn the so-called innocent tribesmen for suppressing the truth and living their lives accordingly. In this way, everyone is a sinner. Everyone has suppressed the truth. There is none righteous. No, not one. No one is innocent before God. This truth is sometimes difficult for us to accept because we assume that there are people who are actually neutral towards God, right? like the rural village person who's never heard about Jesus. But the reality is that no one starts in a neutral position. It might seem unfair uh, uh, of God to judge them when his wrath, uh, with his wrath if people are in a neutral position. But the Bible teaches that we are all born guilty and corrupt. We are totally depraved. Therefore, God can't let sinners and unrighteous people use a get-out-of-free get out of jail free card, like in the game of Monopoly. Punishment must be administered. We aren't merely bystanders or spectators of sin and idolatry. We're personally guilty. We're culpable. 
we're responsible. We have rejected God. And because we are very bad, the saying goes, God is very mad. So God must punish people for their sin. So what does this tell us about the relationship between God's wrath on the unrighteous and why there is no shame in the good news of the righteousness of God? Well, we are not subject to God's wrath because we didn't get to hear and believe the gospel. We are subject to God's wrath because we have rejected God. So the hypothetical native in a rural village compared to me and you living in the comforts of California are no different. We're all in the same boat. We're all without excuse. So we're not ultimately deserving of wrath because of an absence of faith in Jesus, but the presence of sin in our hearts and our actions. And so praxis, our problem isn't an intellectual deficiency. It is a moral deficiency. We suppress what can be known about God and live as if God's not real. We live as if God is dead. When someone says, prove to me God exists, and then I'll believe in him and then live for him, it's a suppression of the truth so that they can be at ease with their deceitful hearts. They believe that it's okay that they're not okay with God. Theologian A.W. Tozer once said, in the moment of sin, every man is a practical atheist. In other words, when we sin and rebel against God, our minds and our hearts suppress the truth of God, about God. We aren't atheists in the sense of how the world would define an atheist, but we live as we are. We are true participants and actors in this false reality that we imagine ourselves in. We live as atheists when our lives are characterized by prayerlessness. After all, prayer takes on the posture of dependence on an all-powerful, infinite God. And so in our prayerlessness, we're saying we are independent of God. We are saying we're the ones in power and in control. We control the destiny of our lives. We live as functional atheists when we think our sin is private and no one knows about it. After all, not even the all-knowing God knows about what you're doing or watching on the internet. We live as functional atheists when we are lazy and think we can get away from working diligently because we're working from home and our boss doesn't see us. All the while not realizing that God, the big boss in heaven above, does see us. We live as functional atheists when we worry, when we're anxious, forgetting God's presence and how he continually seeks the good of those who love him, even in the trials and the suffering we experience in this life. Living as a functional atheist at the heart of it is ungodliness. We ungod the one true God from our lives giving little or no thought of God's will, God's glory, or dependence on him. And so the fact that every person is ungodly and deserves to be uh, under God's wrath tells us this sobering reality about the universal human condition. Our biggest problem in life is our sin problem. The fact that the wrath of God is upon us for suppressing the truth means we can't minimize our sin problem. People's sin, our sin, is serious. We can't simply believe it's no big deal. We can't and shouldn't minimize our sin. We, we can't make excuses. We can't just brush it off or throw, throw it under the rug because this is the wrath of God we're talking about. That's how serious it is. 
People are under judgment for how they have responded to the reality of God's existence and what is revealed in creation. And that response is in how we live our lives. Oh, last week I um, attended a marriage counseling seminar at Lighthouse. The teacher referenced this uh, very, very illustrative and poignant YouTube video clip titled, It's Not About the Nail. And basically it's a conversation between a couple and it plays out this uh, plays on the stereotype that just about every man has who's been in a relationship has pro probably heard the words from their significant other. <coughs> Sorry, I drink water for this. <laughs> significant other says, don't try to fix it. I just need you to listen. And granted, there are situations where this is true, especially speaking for myself as a guy who lacks any self-awareness. Anyways, the, the woman begins to share and describe an irritating pain she's feeling, right? She complains about a feeling or painful pressure in her head. And she doesn't know if it's ever going to stop. The guy is doing his best to not be that guy who always tries to fix a perceived problem and does a poor job of listening, right? Yet there is a glaring issue. There, there is an immediate problem. So after she finishes sharing, the guy finally musters up the courage to speak well, you do have a nail in your forehead. The camera immediately cuts to a clear shot of her forehead, and she literally does have a nail pegged into her forehead. But she responds, it's not about the nail. And then he responds, are you sure? Because I bet if we got that out of there, she responds, stop trying to fix it. He responds, I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just pointing out that maybe the nail is causing that's the video. You see, in our passage today, the apostle draws our attention to the most immediate, the biggest problem we're facing in this life. The proverbial nail in all of us is our sin problem before a holy God, which required Jesus Christ to be nailed on the cross. Our unrighteous sin is the big reason for why we are under God's wrath. Our unrighteousness before a holy and just God is, is a bigger deal than we realize. Our greatest problem is our sin problem. And because we are under God's wrath for our sin, the most obvious solution, the radical but necessary fix, is the gospel. And this passage should inflame our sense of, of urgency for evangelism and missions. This is a clear application that should scream at us when we read this passage. And everything comes into sharper focus as we recall Paul's earlier words, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. If everyone is under the wrath of, of, of God for their sin, and we hold the only truth that can rescue them, we have the responsibility to tell them the truth. It would be jacked up and unloving to withhold something so vital, so critical for the well-being of our family, friends, and neighbors. And so we bear the message of hope in the gospel where Jesus paid the price for sins on the cross. Where Jesus diverts the wrath of God by taking upon himself for all who believe in him. As believers, we hold forth the good news that the righteousness of Christ can be applied to unrighteous people. If they would turn away from their sinful path and place their faith in Jesus Christ. But even as we find ourselves today... Even while the gospel is proclaimed, a majority of people in the world continue in their suppression. 
They continue to take step after step in their daily lives to reject the reality, reality of God. And so Paul lays out and explains what this looks like. This is the downward path of the unrighteous. And this downward path shows the severity of sin in all of us. Which brings us to our third point this evening. The rejection of God for idols points to our unglorified passions. Verse 21 to 23. Look with me at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. What happens when you suppress the truth? What are the serious repercussions as people continue down this path? Well, Paul provides the pathology report on man's terminal condition. People know about God, yet they did not honor him. The word for honor is the idea of ascribing, giving glory to God because he is worthy and deserves it. Having known about God should have influenced their opinion of him. But instead, the response has been a lack of thankfulness for God creating them. An attitude of ingratitude and thanklessness is a sign of being alienated from God. You see, the blessing of life, the the enjoyment of of good things in creation, uh, the daily provision God provides should lead to gratitude towards him. But what happens instead? You think all the good things here on earth just happens to be there. They think they earned everything in life. And so they desire more. And then discontentment sets in. And they embody the, the, the prideful and self-absorbed mindset of Gaston from Dizzy's Beauty and the Beast, if you watched it, who said, and don't I deserve the best? You see, people fail to thank God because they fail to acknowledge him. But as Christians, we acknowledge all good gifts come from above and from a good and loving father. Therefore, we thank him. We glorify him in our prayers. But as we continue to observe how people have rejected God, the passage becomes darker and darker. Verse 21 states, people became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That word futile is uh, vanity, meaningless, pointless. A life without being in relationship with God is empty, purposeless. It's fleeting and doesn't endure. The quest for wisdom in the world apart from God is a fool's errand because it's devoid of a fear of the Lord. Vanity of vanity, said Solomon, as he reflected upon his life and pondered the value of life without the fear of God. But now look at what happens in verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. People that don't live under the reality of an all-powerful God think or think and believe they, they've attained enlightenment and true wisdom. But in reality, they are considered fools. This would be the person who says, oh, I used to grow up going to church, heard the gospel, studied the Bible, but now I have left all that and learned and experienced so much in the world. I realize how religion and belief in God is actually what holds me back. And they speculate that they have progressed so much more than the limited minds and worldview of believers. They would regard themselves as those who are no longer imprisoned to looking at shadows of reality. For them, it is the Christians who who live stuck in their ignorant caves, not seeing the bigger picture of reality. But according to God, it is those who reject him who are foolish. 
I like how John MacArthur puts it when he says, the history of mankind is de-evolutionary, not evolutionary. So rather than being enlightened in their hearts, their hearts became darkened. Now, perhaps uh, we don't want to disparage those who adamantly reject Jesus in the Christian worldview. We don't engage in calling them derogatory names. There's a lot of smart, intelligent people out there, smarter than me, smarter than you. They're your bosses, maybe your former professors, they're your friends, your, your colleagues. They advance the sciences. Uh, they advance technology. They, they advance space exploration. They're the ones who helped de develop the latest COVID vaccines to save and preserve lives from the virus. So in many ways, they, they are smart and intelligent, okay? There's no denying that. But when it comes to what is the most important issues in life, the stuff that really matters and impacts life now as well as after we die, things like who, who is God and how can I be made right with him? In that regard, they're fools. Why? Verse 21 tells us how fools respond to God. And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We're now given a bigger picture view of sin. The scope of our sin is on the level of cosmic treason against the one true God. And that's what makes it so serious. Our, our sin is so serious because it's a high stakes exchange taking place. Under the veneer of what we would try to justify as, as merely messing up or I'll do better next time. What do people exchange the glory of God for when they sin? They exchange the glory of God for created things, which is considered foolish. It is foolish to exchange something or someone of infinite value for something or someone of finite value. So what do we call, what, I'm sorry, what do we call a person who maybe consistently buys shares of stocks at a very high price, right? And then sells it at a very low price for a loss. Well, for all you financially savvy praxis folks in here, you probably call that person a fool for losing all their money. Or maybe consider this, the Mona Lisa painting, a one-of-a-kind priceless painting at the Musée de Louvre. Now imagine for a minute that you had the opportunity and actual money to buy this Mona Lisa painting. It was offered to you at $1 billion. But instead of buying this priceless, real authentic painting, you say, hey, I think I'm gonna buy a photo image of the Mona Lisa that ministry associate Chris took on his last trip to, uh, to, to Paris. Now, Chris asked for the same price as the original, $1 billion. And shockingly, you agree. But then Pastor Allen comes along, and boy, does he have a proposition for you. His wonderful son and daughter saw Chris's photo and has drawn a picture of a, the Mona Lisa on a, a post-it sticky note with a pencil. Asking price, $1 billion, the same price as the original. So you turn down the, the opportunity to buy the original painting. Instead, you, you buy a copy of a copy and you give Alan $1 billion for his children's drawing of the Mona Lisa. Some of you might be thinking, oh, that's cute. But you know what I would say? Oh, fool. Okay. Now, when we sin, we exchange the glory of God for something that is of no or minimal value in, in proportion to the priceless worth of God. Okay, And that is the essence of sin here. 
And here at Lighthouse, we often talk about sin as idolatrous worship. So for believers, instead of seeking, sorry, instead of seeing Jesus as better, we seek better life outside of God himself. We often don't think of ourselves as idolaters because, or, but, but even as believers, we are actually guilty of idolatrous hearts. We think it's just those who practice ancestral worship or those who put up a, a lucky cat or war general shrine at the mom and pop Asian restaurant that you, you like to eat at before COVID. And we, we live under the assumption that idol worship only happens in, in other religions that make use of a shrine or, or variously ornately carved images, objects. But the reality is this, every person's heart is characterized by idolatry. What is idolatry? Sure, idolatry can be the worship of immoral evil things, but can also be the worship of good things in creation. Even good things in creation can become distorted into becoming a ruling thing in your heart. That is the essence of idolatrous sin. An idol dominates your thoughts. An idol dominates your affections. An idol demands your time. It demands your allegiance with the, the promise of giving you something you want or desire if you bow down to it, if you sacrifice enough for it. When we, we put anything or anyone in God's place, that object becomes the image we perceive as our God. And so we worship and treat these images as if they are God. Idolatry is when we throw our hope and lives at what we think will bring happiness in life. We'll be willing to, to bend over backward and give our lives that we could just obtain, just, just achieve just that one thing. For some, it's family and an allegiance and commitment that even usurps other relationships, such as those with other believers or commitment to the church. While for some, idolatry is exchanging the glory of God for the glory of money and becoming the next God of Gambler's stock market edition. For others, it's sex or intimate pleasure that promise, promises you will never be lonely. For some, it's worshiping an ideal body image and let, let it become a ruling desire for you. For others, it's the idol of career and finding your worth in, in pleasing others and being recognized and glorified for your accomplishments in the business world or for your line of work. The suppression of God always leads to a replacement of God. We either serve the one true God, or we serve our idols. And that is why idolatry is so scandalous. Because the one true God does exist. He created us and has the exclusive right to receive our trust and our obedience. And idolatry attacks our hearts. It redirects our love, trust, and obedience to itself instead of the one true God who made you and wants you to be in a saving relationship. All of us have failed as sinners and deserve God's wrath. So praxis, what is your idol? What have you exchanged the glory of God for? Is it getting rich quickly? Endless entertainment? The idea of companionship and marriage? Pleasing your friends or your family, even if it means 
drawing you further from God and fellowship with others. You see, the idols we live for, the things that drive us are incredibly demanding of us. For example, if you're driven by wealth and money, which promises to make you happy, you'll soon discover that money is actually a ruthless God. Money makes promises to you, maybe more holidays, maybe more security. Maybe you'll have more influence with more money, more choices. Maybe you'll be uh, more attractive in the the dating scene. Maybe it's going to offer you the good life. But you're the one who has to do all the work to make it happen, right? You eat what you kill. Money makes a promise, but you have to make it happen. And so it drives you mercilessly, even when you think you've made it. You're going to want more. So what happens to our hearts in the pursuit of idols? Well, if we have to work hard for everything, if we have to work for sacrifice for these idols, we're going to become entitled and prideful. We're going to feel very quickly, we feel we're owed something because of our relationship with these idols is, it's, it's, it's a trade-off with, when it comes to idols. Blessings in exchange for work and sacrifice. So for the idol family, it's the promised blessings of acceptance and respect. If you do whatever your family demands of you, even if it means giving up your commitment to Christ. So you must ask these things about idols. Is it really paying off for you? And truthfully, the answer must be no. Because you're going to feel burnt out. You're going to feel disappointed in the things you set your hopes in, in these idols. You'll never be satisfied or experience true joy that comes by means of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because for only then will you you experience eternal life. Only then will you truly experience the good life. Apart from Christ, we will experience the wrath of God that we deserve. Eternal condemnation and punishment. And that is bad news. But here's the good news. The wrath of God is revealed. But there is one who can take that wrath for you. He is your only hope, and that person is Jesus. At the cross, God took out his wrath on his own perfect and blameless son, Jesus. For our sake, for your sake, so that Jesus' righteousness might be yours and ours if, if, we, if we believe and trust him. Do you get that? It is through Jesus that we are able to, to switch places, Right? The wrath that was intended for us placed upon him. If you have not professed or placed your faith in Jesus Christ, what are you waiting for? Are you going to continue and and wait as we journey through Romans and it gets even darker and darker and and more negative about being righteous to men for the next two chapters? If you realize right now that you are unrighteous, if you realize that you are a sinner, what are you waiting for? You may not have tomorrow. If the eternal wrath of God awaits you, do you really want to wait? The doctor, the physician is here. And this physician, this doctor is special. Though your spiritual condition is terminal, this physician, this doctor works miracles. And his greatest miracle was on the cross. So will you turn to Jesus who is mighty to save. Will you pray with me? Father, I ask that you would just help us to 
really come to terms with how sinful we truly are, how seriously we have offended you. And we appreciate the wrath that was diverted onto Jesus in our place. Help us to live wisely. By that I mean knowing the devastation sin causes even in the present world and how it can cause devastation in our lives. Thank you for giving us Jesus who helps us to reflect on and help us to reflect on the rich realities of the gospel on a daily basis. I pray that you would help those who are here tonight who have not yet placed their faith in Jesus. I ask that you would help them to understand the gospel more clearly. Help them to understand their position more clearly so that they may appreciate your propitiation more dearly. In the saving name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.